Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Nerd Shit. Nerd Shit. Nerd Shit. Nerd Avengers Assemble. Today, we're going to be reviewing The Avengers, the 2012 film, not the uh, British film from the 90s. Uh, spoilers <laughs> ahead for The Avengers. Uh, actually, if you are uh, in certain territories, this movie is called Avengers Assemble. So if you know this movie is Avengers Assemble, because uh, yes, I do know we have some some international viewers and they did change that title to avoid confusion with that other movie that I just mentioned. <laughs> but so spoilers ahead for the Avengers, the MCU film from 2012. First, uh, how are we doing today? Zach, how are you doing? Doing pretty good. Uh, it's been a decent week so far. Looking forward to a holiday-filled weekend. Uh, got both uh, Passover tomorrow and uh, Easter this Sunday. Should be interesting. Yeah, exactly. We we getting into that. Mm-hmm. Liz, are you doing anything for the, the Easter or Passover holiday? Uh, I think there is an event on Animal Crossing that I might be a part of, and I was invited to a furry orgy, but they said that I have to be the Easter bunny. And you're like, no, no. <laughs> How you doing, Sam? <laughs> yeah, I'm doing pretty well. Uh, yeah, I got, got another gig uh, with the band uh, this Ooh. weekend. I've got a family thing for Easter on Sunday. So, yeah, yes. it should be should be a good time. Should 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 be a good weekend coming up. Of course, if you're listening to this podcast, you the Easter's already happy. You're like, what are they talking about? That was like a week ago. It's like, listen. Well, I will be, if you're <laughs> listening to this, by the time it comes out, I will be performing the next Saturday at Flappers if you want to come and see me. Yes, please go see Liz. For, the, for, for those of you who are, uh, you know, SoCal-based, mm-hmm. uh, definitely go see uh, Liz over in Flappers. All right, let's roll right on into The Avengers, ending out phase one of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Full spoiler start here for The Avengers. want to start by talking about some of these characters, uh, including the actual titled Avengers, but I'm actually going to start with, uh, it's funny, like, with these movies, I tend to usually start with the character who feels like the the most, like, lead character, and, like, you can make an argument for Tony, you can make an argument for a couple characters, but, like, I've always kind of felt for me that the the kind of the glue that holds this movie together is really Nick Fury. I think this is actually slightly yeah. more Fury's movie than is anybody else's because mm. really the the overall kind of goal or the action of this movie is assembling the Avengers. And to me, Nick Fury is sort of the protagonist that's going after that goal of I have to get the Avengers together. So I don't know if you guys view it differently, but I, I've always felt that if if I'm going to say really the movie doesn't really have a central protagonist, yeah. it's, it's an actual true ensemble film. But if I if I have to choose a protagonist for this movie, I tend to actually go for Nick Fury. I don't, I don't know if you guys uh, view it any differently. I agree. I yeah. completely yeah. agree. It is definitely his movie. Mm-hmm. Um, we see more from his point of view, and he does take the lead in this movie. No, that's that's pretty much how I feel about it. I, I do agree that more than anything, it really is an ensemble. Um, there's not any one strong protagonist, but Nick is the closest you got to a protagonist throughout the whole film. And it's one of those things where being the protagonist doesn't necessarily make you like the star or the main hero of the movie. <laughs> like, I, I'd be curious to see like a, a, t- a screen time breakdown, but like, I, I would say he probably doesn't have as much screen time as maybe a Tony Stark. 
Although it might be closer than, than you might think. But yeah, I mean, he, he definitely has a role of, as, for, as far as a curator of the team. Uh, but he, I don't know, he, he's interesting in this movie. He's a little bit, like, he's definitely working towards a noble goal, for sure. But we see that, you know, he's he's a little bit more, his, his methods tend to be a little bit more morally gray than that of some of our main heroes. He is both the person that brings together the Avengers and also kind of... An example of an existing world state that he is following, but is, he, it's weird to say it's almost like by forming the Avengers, he kind of wants to replace himself a bit because he is aware of and knows that using the Tesseract to make weapons is not like the greatest thing in the world. When he's confronted about it, he admits it straight up and outright states that it is because they don't really have a good answer for if Thor comes by, or if someone else builds an Iron Man suit, or if someone else turns into a Hulk, they don't really have a good response for that. It's interesting that he is both fully accepting of that role, but also, by the end of the film, he also admits that the reason he brought together the Avengers in the first place, that he brought up that idea, is that he also feels like there's a better way to do it, that it, he doesn't... He would much prefer to have a way to protect the world to, fall, to go throughout his goals without resorting to that. And when the Avengers do take the Tesseract in the end, he's just kind of goes with, yeah, no, we probably shouldn't have had him in the first place. He, he's an interesting guy. He is noble. He has noble goals, but is willing to do almost anything um, to achieve them. Which for a lot of characters could end up almost villainous, but it's a it's a tight line he walks, which is one of the reasons the character is so interesting is that he does try and walk that line. I think they're I think they're actually able to fight back this threat because of Nick Fury. Mm-hmm. Um this is something that he has worked on and we find out in Miss Marvel that it's something that he's worked on since he was very young and since he first found out that there was an alien threat. I think without him none of that would have happened and he understands that to get people to do certain things you have to manipulate them. You can't if you're straightforward with them, a lot of times you're not going to get what you need from them. I love the way that he has over the years manipulated everything to come to this point. Using the term to replace himself with, I really like that term, but I don't feel that's what he was doing. I feel he was looking for a defense against whatever was coming, uh, a defense to lead. I don't think he was looking really to replace himself. He'd rather stay in the shadows so no one knows about him because he's smart, because he's intelligent. But I do like the way that he was like, all right, we got shit coming. We got to get this shit done. Let's get everything together. Where are there individuals that could help us? And then he set out. And this is that fruit. Um, It's that first phase coming to an end. And... I don't know. I I can't say that I would have done anything differently. I understand why S.H.I.E.L.D. made weapons from the technology of the Tesseract. I understand why uh, he did the things he did, because... That was the best way he knew how. Well, I think that what it really comes down to is he's a guy who always has a backup plan for everything. He has a yes. plan A, he has a plan B, C, D, E. Like he has, he never is is willing to put all of his his chips on you know all his no. eggs in one basket. 
And we know from, you know, knowing later on, like, he has more stuff up his sleeve that he's not even playing yet. He still, he has that pager from uh, Captain Marvel still. Um, like, like, he has, like, he's always got different things. And we find out, you know, even in... He's always got a trick. Exactly. He's got, he's always got something. And he's always got a backup for his backups, you know. Yep. <laughs> and it's like making the Tesseract into weapons. That was one idea and then the avengers was another idea it's like and again the avengers was what he was that was what he was most eager to uh to kind of do but at the same time like he's he's also not willing to kind of give up in the case of playing it safe because we see that he doesn't have that uh willingness that the world security council has of just nuking uh the city of like Mm. let's just let's just take out this army we can just do this with the strike yeah, at the end of the day, his goals are uh, noble, and he's willing to sacrifice. He's willing to compromise in certain up to a certain point. But at the end of the day, his mission is to help people. It is to save the general population. Yeah, and it's like once we start nuking our own cities, like we've we've already lost. You've already lost. You know? Yeah, nuke is never an option, no matter what it is. <laughs> yeah, you can't go nuclear because we're done. Yeah, that's that's pretty much how I feel. So. I yeah, so I I really do. I like the character a lot, and uh, this is the biggest role that he's had in the MCU up until this point. He's just been popping up in these little cameos, like he had kind of a supporting role in Iron Man two. But this is the first time we see him as kind of a main character of a film, and it's to this day like I would say probably still the most significant role that he's had in an MCU movie, other than maybe Captain Marvel would be the other one. But yeah, I yeah I I really enjoy. Uh, what Samuel Jackson does in this role. Like he, he, he manages to walk that line. Like he's very Sam Jackson E and kind of his, his, you know, persona. But at the same time, like just, he still like inhabits that character of Nick Fury, the way that he just demands that kind of respect. He has that air of authority about him, but you also, you always know that he has the, these, the gears are always turning. He has these machinations going on all the time. And you, there's no one that he's telling every part of his plan to. There's no, all like, everybody has their part. He's like Dumbledore. Exactly. Very much so. And I do think it's really interesting that, uh, you know, he kind of manipulated the Avengers after the death of Coulson, where he, the the thing with the trading (laughs) cards, that he apparently took out of Coulson's locker, smeared in Coulson's blood, and then threw on the table. Yep. And that's one of those things where I know um, the canon status of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is a little bit on, on, you know... It's it's a little bit bit kind of tricky, but at the same time, like with with Asians of Shield, and I know that there are also you know more circumstances behind Coulson coming back on that show, but at the same time, the fact that Nick Fury was lying about that does kind of call a lot of things into question. Of like, is Coulson even dead? You know, because like, we see the 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 medical team uh come right after. Colson's supposed death and it's like there, there's this thing we even just watching this movie it's like well he was lying about the cards like did the medical team actually you know defib- defibrillate Colson and bring him back or something like that because like we're yeah. just taking on on fury's word it's like yeah the the medical team came but they called it it was too late 
it's like, but can you really trust anything that, that he says at the same time, you know? So I think it's really interesting that he he is a very kind of deceitful character, but at the same time, he's he's using those methods for an uh, ultimately a good goal. And ultimately kind of drives the Avengers away, like, like especially like Tony and Steve are very kind of not on Nick Fury's, they're not marching to Fury's Fife by, by the end of the movie, but at the same time, it doesn't matter to Fury because they're completely doing what he wanted them to do. So it's like, you can hate me if you want, you know, as long as you do what you guys need to do. So he's willing to he's willing to kind of be the bad guy uh, in in the in the eyes of the Avengers. So yeah, I don't know. He's an inter- he's an interesting character. Oh yeah, I think the thought is as long as they all come together, it doesn't matter exactly. Who they come together against. Yeah, they come together. They save the world. They can hate me all they want. Bada bing, bada boom. <laughs> of course, right after the cold open, we're uh, kind of reintroduced to Natasha Romanoff, aka Black Widow, who. Uh, I love her intro scene where she, it seems like yeah. at first that she's being interrogated, but actually she's the one who's actually extracting the information out of them, which is kind of the theme for Black Widow throughout this entire movie is yeah. she has this way of making somebody else think that they're the one in power when really she's actually the one in power, which she does that to, to Loki later on in the movie. This movie definitely was, for me, a redemption for Black Widow after she was, to, yeah. to me, such a bland, non-entity character in Iron Man 2. I think she's a great character in this movie. I, I, yeah. I think they, and she gets better and better after this. She's able to shine. I think they use her perfectly. I think that uh, she's a catalyst for a lot of the things uh, Avengers and we see that happening with her over and over and over again with the Hulk and everything else. So she's already growing out those roots and she gets to be a complex character instead of just some flat character. It is really night and day from Iron Man 2 because in Iron Man 2, they pretty much knew that, oh, she's kind of a spy and she's a hot action lady and... In this movie, they like actually figured out who Black Widow is as a character and then immediately did a great job of introducing us to that. Former Russian, or at least she thinks she is. She has a lot of guilt in her past, and she's still willing to do stuff that's a little beyond the pale, is a little beyond the gray, and is willing to put herself in all manner of situations she's not really comfortable with. You know, one thing that's, you know, something brought that's occasionally brought up is like, oh, well, Black Widow is not really the powerhouse of other characters. And she knows that in this movie. Like, when she's in the final battle of New York, any scene where she is near the Hulk at any point, and I really got to give it to um, Scarlett Johansson for playing this so well, that mix of the careful controlled facade um, of being in a situation while also being kind of scared shitless the whole time because she's not a soldier. She is a spy. Her skills, her abilities are more subtle. And when she's allowed to, you know, showcase those such as in the beginning, such as in the Loki interrogation scene, um, she does an amazing job. I still wish she would have had her own movie before now. Uh, before the, it actually came out. Oh, uh, no, I, I agree. But even like... But she was utilized well in this movie. Yes. I definitely think that her movie should have come out before it did. It should have It should have come out, again, I, I said this before, but it should have come out when it actually like happened in the timeline. Yes. Like, like it should yes. like like the same the, the exact same movie should have just come out after Civil War, before Infinity War, just yep. some, somewhere in there. That's yeah. where it should have come out. 
Um, and it's it's ridiculous to me that that we finally got her movie so late. But yeah, no, so I, I agree with that. But yeah, I mean, I but, but I but I do actually like this movie kind of being the full proper introduction to to her as a character because I think it, it does a good yeah. job of that. And we're only really having to be fully introduced to a couple. I know again we've we've met Black Widow, but like really actually getting introduced to her as a character. And yeah, I, I agree with you guys. And well, it's interesting what you were saying, Zach, about how she's not as powerful as a lot of the other Avengers. That's something that I think is true for the Avengers in general as a team, which is that. They're actually not a balanced team in terms of their powers. But in terms of skills, they are. But like in terms of skills, they are. Like they like they all bring something unique to the table. And yeah. Natasha, like she's she can handle herself in a fight, and yeah. she does end up being useful in the final battle. But like where she really ends up shining in this movie is really in like that Loki interrogation scene of like she's the one that you send in to extract information. That's because what that's she's her good expertise. at. Yeah, they showed that in the very beginning with that opening scene and then they do it all the same. And a lot of people are caught off guard with, holy shit, that's exactly what she was doing. The same damn thing. And, and even most of the audience didn't know what they, what she was doing. It was a genius way of using those methods and showing what she does bring to the table. Exactly. Yeah. That moment where she drops the mask at that, it's like, Oh, okay. You're planning the reason. Thank you. I just, I love that every single time. It's like, all right. It's such a great moment, yeah. And then, of course, like, during the Battle of New York, again, for most of it, you know, she's kind of just, you know, trying to keep her part, but then she ends up being the one who gets the scepter and closes the portal. And I love that, that part where she, like, jumps up onto the Chitauri, like, you know, skiff speed or whatever, and, like... Ends up having to steer the one guy by like you know it's 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 a really cool thing and then she went full ratatouille on him. I think it's a good use of her in that moment because um, she's still got plenty of asking scenes, but it also is a you know slightly more thoughtful way of handling it. It's like which you would give to her character because she's more intelligent way. After a certain point, she realizes that she's not going to be. She can hold her own, but she's not going to be the most useful when it comes to just taking down ground guys. And she's like... And she's more cerebral than that. Yeah. Exactly. She's like, you know what? I got to go up there and close the portal. And she figures out a way to do that using her intelligence yeah. and using her acrobatic ability. Mm-hmm. Like, all, all of that definitely plays into it. So... I'm going to show you how badass I am. I'm going to save the day. Yes, exactly. you did. <laughs> well, it's what I it's what I love so much about the Battle of New York, and we're we're, we're we're kind of talk about the Battle of New York, kind of sprinkled throughout this this whole podcast because it's such a big part of the movie. But like the fact that they gave every single character a specific role within the battle that mattered, a specific and unique role within the battle that mattered. It's just I think it was just brilliant the the writing, the execution of it. I want to talk about uh, Bruce Banner slash in- the Incredible Hulk, uh, played by Eric Bana. No, I'm sorry. Uh, Edward Norton. No, I'm sorry. Uh, Bill Bixby. <laughs> oh, wait, it's Mark Ruffalo. That's right. So Mark Ruffalo plays the character for the first time, not for the last time, certainly not for the last time, but he plays him for the first time in this movie. I'll just say, uh, I'll, I'll kind of, because we, we already kind of talked about in our Incredible Hulk review what we thought of Edward Norton in this role, I guess, like, not not to necessarily have to compare it, but what do we think of Mark Ruffalo in the role? Uh, he was made for it. He's the top choice. I... I don't think that there is any better Hulk than him. I mean, I love Eric Bana. I love Eric Bana. And when I, when I think of Eric Bana, I salivate. So I need you to know that. But 
Mark Ruffalo brings this side of the Hulk that he, we have never seen before. He's funny, he's smart, he's awkward, but he's charming. Oh my god, he's so fucking charming. Mm-hmm. And I I absolutely love him as the Hulk. I couldn't see anybody else playing the Hulk now. I love how for want of a better word, tired he is. He's exhausted from being on the run. He is constantly, you know, prepared to self-deprecate or prepared for everyone else to assume the worst about him or be prepared for someone to fight. And in the very first scene where we see him, like when the kid runs out the window and he sees Natasha, it's like, you know, this is not that surprising. It's about what I was expecting at this point. And, and we don't know it yet, but we find out later on that he basically realized he can't die and he's stuck with this forever. But he's just so deeply unafraid of... First of all, he learned to control the Hulk, so he's not really afraid of losing control and smashing everybody. And he's also not afraid of the soldiers in any way. So I love that moment where he messes with Natasha, you know, shouts at her to try and gauge her reaction, figure out how she's actually approaching this, get a real point of view on it. Um, And also that... Tiredness works well because it's clear that, you know, by the end, when, you know, when he has that moment with Tony in the lab and Tony's like actually talking about him like a peer and, you know, respecting his work, respecting him. And he tells him, yeah, you know, you could work at Stark Labs. You get the impression that he would love nothing more than to just stop being on the run, to start doing science again, to really help people. Um, I all of that is carried so well through Mark Ruffalo's performance. He He's just fantastic in the role. I don't think that it would have ruined this movie or the overall cinematic universe had Edward Norton reprised the role. I still maintain I think that he was a good banner, and I think that these movies would have turned out just fine with him. I think he totally would have worked in the ensemble. But I do think that Mark Ruffalo was still an upgrade at the end of the day. I think that he's really, really good in this role. For all the reasons you said, like the, the, that kind of... Uh, there's both a lightness and a darkness there. Like you see the duality yes. even in just the way that he plays Banner uh, when he's he's not even hulking out. Like you know, and w- when we get to that uh, that reveal of I'm always angry and he can turn into the Hulk at will. Like you kind of see that throughout the movie. You see that there's always this anger under the <laughs> surface. There's always that angst underneath there, even when he is you know kind of cracking a joke or anything like that. I think. So I'll, I'll say this for, first of all before I, I cast it because I, I'm probably gonna over the course of this review um, say a lot of things about uh, what Joss Whedon kind of did for this movie and I'll, I'll just kind of say that like we've talked about Joss Whedon as a person on this podcast and I, I acknowledge that he's not a good person and that in all honesty he probably shouldn't be you know based on kind of the abuse he's put actors and everything through he probably shouldn't be uh kind of working in this this industry anymore but i am a fan and admirer of his work and i always have been uh and i probably get and i'm gonna like mention certain things that that he does throughout this review but what i was gonna say was i think that joss whedon is the person who is best at writing this particular character i think this movie and age of ultron are the best writing for bruce banner that we've seen in my personal opinion I think that he was good in, in Incredible Hulk. And I really like, again, all the movies past this that have the character in him. 
but I'll be honest, all the movies that he's in after Age of Ultron, I think he's a little, the, I think the writing feels a little off for him after that. Um, I've always, and, and I'll, I'll kind of uh, expand upon, upon that when we kind of get into Thor Ragnarok, Infinity War, Endgame, where I think that those movies made him a little, among other things, I think the movies made him a little too jokey. They made him a little too much of a comic relief character. And I kind of feel like I lost a little bit of that angst. And I think that Whedon just does such a good job of writing this character to the point where there's, there's almost this thing where not only do I not want anyone else to play Banner other than Mark Ruffalo, I almost don't want anybody to write this version of the character other than Joss Whedon because I think that something's missing when anybody like, like and it's funny like all the other main characters I think are completely intact from movie to movie no matter who's the writer of it I think Banner is just a better character when when Whedon is writing him and I I, I don't know I don't know why that is if if Joss Whedon just happens to associate with that character more or anything like that but yeah he's really good at writing the duality of that I mean thinking yeah. about how he did with Buffy and the Buffy show Angel Spike. You know, even Buffy fighting her her own demons. That duality, yeah. I I think that he has always had this knack, and all of his projects has br- has brought him to this moment, to where he does have this knack of going back and forth on the duality. Um, even his version of uh, Much Ado About Nothing. Uh, there's more of that duality in uh, Beatrice. I think he just gets it. But that makes sense because he has such a talent and he's such a shit human being. So yep. <laughs> he understands that duality. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and what, what, what burns me up about the whole Joss Whedon situation is like, I don't just think he's a good actor in a general sense, although I do think he's a good actor in a general sense. But his work just really specifically appeals to my to my particular sensibilities in such a strong way. That, like, he really is one of my favorite, like, just looking at his work, he's one of my favorite filmmakers and writers uh, out there. He really is. Like, I just love, love his work. It's just, it's just a shame that all, all this stuff has kind of been coming out about, about the way he treats people. Uh, because, like, you know, being talented is just no, no excuse to treat people like feces, you know? Exactly, yeah. You can, you make all the glorious stuff in the world, but you gotta treat people right. Goddamn. Exactly. I really like Banner's scenes that he has with Natasha, and that's part of the reason why I, um... It's funny, like, with the whole thing with Age of Ultron, with the, the kind of developments that their relationship has, and I'm, I'm not trying to jump ahead to, to movies that we are also going to review down the line, but, like, I know that a lot of people thought that that relationship kind of came out of nowhere, and I actually don't think it did just based on this movie. Like, it's one of those things where their relationship didn't have to take a romantic turn, but it's one of those things that if you are going to go that route, I think that a, a foundation for that was built. And I think that, I don't know. I, I just, I think they have an interesting dynamic. I think part of it is just that, and this is probably why they were paired up. I think that Mark Ruffalo and Scarlett Johansson just have a really natural chemistry with each other. Plus, I can't blame her for being curious about the Hulk eggplant. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Does everything get better, or is it sort of a gorilla situation where things just don't, don't unfortunately go to scale, or... <laughs> Hmm, let's see. I wonder. See, see, we're we're all wondering it now. Even even we Sam is wondering it. 
<laughs> For some of us, it's a morbid curiosity, but we still so all want to know. It, I think it's a natural attraction. What you got <laughs> exactly. in those torn jeans, huh? <laughs> well, I also really just love the first time we see him transform into the Hulk on the helicarrier. It's, it's also a scene with Natasha, but the way it's shot, it feels like a werewolf transformation or something yeah. like that. It's, it, be- it becomes it's that a kind of horror movie. movie. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. In this movie, there's a really interesting dynamic between that I think actually kind of sets up some of the Professor Hulk stuff later on, even here, even right now. Um, and that there's a really interesting way that the Hulk acts here versus when he acts later in the Battle of New York. Um, cause this Hulk right in this helicarrier, it came out of nowhere. It was a surprise. This is purely a defense mechanism. And as a result, it is just mindless. Um, no one is able to talk to him. He doesn't react. He doesn't calm down. He doesn't, he's not trying to run away. He is just attacking anything that moves. Um, anything that he's he sees. Later on in the Battle of New York, there's, he's not quite, he is kind of a mix of just the Hulk control. is a monster and Banner. There is a little bit of Banner yeah. in there too. He's able to talk. He forms connections with other people around him. Puny god. Yeah, he he's able to both remember to save other members of the team. He saves Iron Man. To, and, you know, he's got a little bit of control. And he's almost a little different character. It's a mix of the two. Which I think, again, goes well into later when he starts to gradually, over the course of the films, not just learn to control to turn it on and off, but eventually learn to blend the two. Um, I actually think that's a pretty natural progression, and we see a good start here, while also getting a reminder of why everyone is so goddamn scared of the Hulk. Yep. This is also the best uh, VFX for the Hulk that we'd seen in any yes. movie up to this point. Yeah. Like, it looks... It's it, very naturalistic. This, this movie is, is 10 years old, and it still completely holds up, and, like, even, even just compared to Incredible Hulk, which only came out of four years before this one, like... It's so, like, like, and, and I actually like the CG for Incredible Hulk, but I guess it's leaps and bounds better at the same time. And a lot of what they did is, like, pretty much for the first time, like, they, they always kind of, in the past, had, had viewed the design for the Hulk as being this kind of independent thing from Banner. Like, they made him look like Banner, you know, facially. Like, there, there's, there was some performance capture that went into it. Mark Ruffalo actually is the voice of the Hulk, uh, when he says that that line, puny god, like there's there's things like like I I love the way they did, it, but it really is it's great VFX. Like this was this was like again, it's an Avengers movie, but it's low key kind of the best Hulk movie that had come out up to this point as well. And they really managed to hit that balance of Hulk being the monster, and then at the end, Hulk being a member of the team, and even starting to see Hulk approaching being an actual superhero alongside the re- the rest of them and i think that that was again it goes down to that that duality that we were talking about it's just so so incredibly good uh the way the way it's kind of handled in this movie what about uh when hulk has to fight thor later on in that same scene on the uh the the hell carrier it's a fun fight thor is one of the few characters who can go up against hulk in a kind of a melee battle but uh yeah. Hulk was who was not able to lift uh, Mjolnir. I know that there's versions <laughs> of that, like in uh, the the Ultimates, he does just because he's so fucking strong. But I don't know. I, I always like preferred the idea that even Hulk can't pick it up if he's not worthy. It's it's a fun fight. I like how you know we tend to think of Thor as 
maybe a little bit of a dumb bruiser, but even the little bit of tactics and intelligence that he has actually really makes a difference in the fight, where he's maybe not quite as strong as Hulk, but he's really able to hold his own because... Yeah, he's got training. He's a trained fighter. You know, he's not going to go down in one hit from the Hulk. And, you know, as you pointed out, he knows what he's actually doing as a warrior. He's a warrior. Um, He comes from a family of warriors. He was raised to be a warrior king. Even though Odin regrets some things, you know that Odin wouldn't skimp on his warrior training. That's what they believe in. And uh, it makes sense. It's... It goes to the argument between Angel and Spike, who would win, a Neanderthal, the astronaut. I think that if you have power over your brain and you're able and you've been trained, I think you'll overcome that primal instinct. Um, And I think that's why Thor is a better fighter and usually comes out on top with Hulk. Also, it does not hurt that the people, the specific group that he was training to fight during most of his childhood, were giants who were larger than him. So yes, yes, he's well prepared That's true. That's for a that good particular point. encounter. That is true. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, and then, of course, I mean, I, I touched on this scene, but like, just, just one of the biggest audience like applause moments I remember when this movie came out was was when he does have that line of. That's my secret cap. I'm always angry. And then transforms yeah. into the Hulk at will. It's one of the coolest, most awesome moments in the entire movie. It also shows you the difference between between that uncontrolled Hulk and this controlled Hulk exactly. later. I, I just love the transformation mid-punch. It's like, I already know what size I'm going to be when it lands. <laughs> it's fucking awesome. It's an incredible moment. It really is. It is. Incredible. What about when Hulk uh, smashes Loki around like he's a doll at the, at the end? It's just <laughs> <laughs> that is one of my favorite scenes. Most of the climax of the movie is everyone getting a chance to beat the shit out of Loki, and he yeah. deserves it, and so do they. They all deserve their chance to punch him. <laughs> the cartoon slam is just so perfect, so perfect. When they do the callback in Thor Ragnarok, I lose my shit. Even when I watch yeah. it now, every time I watch it, I lose my shit. But seeing this, I love that he's in mid-sentence, <laughs> and he just snatches him up and slams him around. It's <laughs> That's my kind of stuff right there. That's slapstick comedy. But it's also a scene that gives back when you rewatch the movie at home, because when I saw this in the theater, and I've actually talked to other people who had literally the exact same experience that um the two the two things that people miss are Hulk saying puny god and then Loki making that noise at the end of like ah! yeah which is hilarious but everybody <laughs> misses it in the theater because the entire audience is screaming too much during that entire yeah. part like that's really what it is everybody's <laughs> laughing and cheering the that entire scene which goes yes. into what what a great scene it is but it's like it, but, but you but every everybody everyone who I've ever talked to like misses that in the theater because the there's lines. so much laughter it's it's laughter and applause kind of simultaneously yeah. happening during that that whole thing when when Hulk is smashing Loki around um, which goes to what what a joyous you know theatrical experience this was. I mean, I, I mm. remember seeing this movie in 2012, and just this 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 is one of those movies that pe- people just cheered the whole time, and it's just it's just this 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 movie was an event when it came out. It really was. I just love the ultimate smackdown of superstition by science. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like, what wins out, superstition or science? And then you just show the clip of Hulk <laughs> smashing boom, Loki. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> All right, let's get into uh, uh, Steve Rogers, a.k.a. Captain America, who, uh, again, we're just coming off of his solo movie, was the last movie right before Avengers. Um, I kind of, I like a lot of the stuff about him kind of being isolated, him being a fish out of the water. I will say that there are a lot of really good deleted scenes that kind of expand on this from this movie, yeah. which, if you're listening, if you haven't seen the deleted scenes for this movie, I actually do recommend them. I think you can watch them on- Yes. You can definitely watch them on the Blu-ray. I think they're on Disney Plus as well, but- Mm-hmm. Uh, where where you see him kind of flirting with the one waitress that he saves at the end of the movie. Uh, it's, it's, it's things like that, but uh, and, and there, there's a lot of things of him like going through the files of the Howling Commandos and seeing that they're all deceased, and then seeing Peggy Carter's file and seeing retired, and then he thinks yeah. he thinks about going to see her and and doesn't doesn't yet. We know that in a couple movies from now he will, but but it's one of those things where I don't begrudge them cutting the, any of the scenes because I think that it was actually better for the pacing, but. I, I also think that there's there's some really good stuff with this character that 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 was on the cutting room floor at the same time. But there's still a lot of great stuff for him in this movie. Like I I actually like him more in this movie than I liked him even in uh, First Avenger. I I completely agree with you on that. Actually, there are some moments in this movie where he aggravates me, and then there are some moments in this movie where he gives me a chuckle. It's an experience with uh, Captain America, and uh, I'm one that had that had to grow with that. Uh, when I first saw it, he's the one that threw me off in this movie, and I was so pissed. <laughs> it's like, you fucking moron, with that whole, with the whole line of, there's only one god. I don't like that line either, but... Yeah, yeah it, it pisses me <laughs> off, but it's something he would say. He, he would. is from that time. He is a product of his time, and we still see that. And that line is definitely a product of, of that time. And it's organic. I have a deep dislike for Captain America. And the more, the more the movies go on, the more I dislike him. Cause he just gets darker and darker. And in my opinion, more and more selfish because he's willing to give up the whole picture for personal friends. But in this movie, he does his part. He's the good soldier boy. We see that experience of him going around and getting the troops from World War II when he has to rally the the group to go and come together uh, for this final battle. And I think he's well-written. I have mixed feelings on his overall arc throughout the films, but I will say I actually like in this one that he, at the start, is... Not exactly happy, but just because it's the only sort of comfort, only connection he has, he's immediately willing to go into the role of a soldier, follow orders, do what needs to be done. And over the course of the film, starts to question that a little bit more, partially thanks to the help of Tony and the rest of the Avengers, pointing out that it's like, you know what, there's a lot here that could be seen a little more critically. And I do like in the end that he realizes that he does... He can still do a good role as Captain America. He can still do a good job as an adventurer. He doesn't really need to be the good soldier. It's it's exactly what you know Erskine said in the first movie. It's 
he's not he doesn't he's not there to be a good soldier he's there because he needs to be a good man and i feel like that's part of what his role as team leader is there is he knows what roles are needed he knows who needs to go where what tactics are needed and he's willing to do the right thing but it takes him a sec to get back to it partially because of the sheer isolation he's feeling the loneliness the fact that he doesn't connect to anybody and i also really like so we we talk a lot about colson about his death and how that pushed the avengers and i love the specific effect that that has on him because he has spent so long feeling isolated and you know in some ways almost pushing himself away from others because he's when Coulson interacts and asks about the cards, he kind of deflects a little, saying, oh, yeah, sure, you know, I'll sign those later. And then later on, when Coulson dies, realizes how much he had isolated himself perhaps too far, that people were still willing to interact and talk to him and deal with him as him, not just as this person out of time. And he has every right to feel sorry for himself, but maybe a little too much. So, so much so he didn't really see everyone in front of him. I've, he's never going to be my favorite character, but I do think it's a good story and it's a good role for him um, yeah. in this movie. I mean, again, like like the kind of nature of a team movie like this is not everybody is going to be your personal favorite character, no. but that's because oh, absolutely. they're yeah. that's because they're contrasting characters and they're contrasting characters on purpose. And I think that it's important to yeah. have a character like this, yeah. especially since you have Tony Stark on that other side of the coin. You needed someone to kind of be a contrasting character exactly. against that. Oh yeah, and his role in the movie is fantastic. He, he yeah. is absolutely needed there. Yeah, and and I I really do I like him a lot in this movie. Like I I do think that Steve Rogers is he is actually a character I'm I'm a big fan of actually, and I, I think that a lot of that comes down to I Captain America First Avenger. While it does get better on the rewatch for me, it's not going to be my favorite Cap movie because I do think that he's more interesting, and I think he works better when he is the soldier out of time, when he is the fish out of water. I think that that what the fact that he is a relic from another time and he knows he's a relic from another time i think that that's what makes it interesting i actually like that line uh that that you alluded to of the there's only one god i'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that like it's one of those things where it's it's true it's what you guys said it's true to the character it is something he would say and like i mean you're saying that you don't really like the line but you do acknowledge it's something he would say like i think that if it's something he would say that it's a good line i mean i'm sorry that's that's kind of how i feel that's kind of how I feel about it. Like whether whether or not it's something you personally agree with or not. Like that's actually how I feel. Um, I yeah, I had mixed feelings about it, and I really hated it at first. But what the second time I watched the movie, I actually understood it. I went in with a different mind, and I was like, "Yeah, it makes sense that they that he would say that. That's a line that he would say." Exactly. I guess my feeling on it is that it's a good line for the movie. It does not endear me uh, to him as a character, if that makes sense. It makes me like him less. Yes. It makes him <laughs> It makes him seem a little more closed-minded, a little out of time, a little old-fashioned, which he is. And again, yep. that's why it's a good line. But again, it does not endear me to him. I, yeah, I don't know. It's weird. I, I see that point of view. And then listen, like I'm, I'm not at all, you know, an old fashioned. Like I'm, not, I'm not a religious person by any stretch <laughs> of the imagination. Right. But at the same time, it actually kind of does weirdly endear me to him in a weird way. Like it's hard to really even explain what I mean. Like I, 
I, I I liked the the awareness of like who this character kind of is, and the and and yes. I and I admire them for not trying to like make him more. I think it's it's the fact of them not trying to make him likable to a modern audience as much actually weirdly makes him more likable to me in a weird way because it it. It, I feel like it would have felt dis like if he if he comes out with this kind of thing, it's like oh we're really like I'm I'm actually uh, you know an atheist and I believe in like legalization of we I don't know whatever he's got to say like right. I feel like that kind of thing just would have actually felt a little bit pandering and would have it felt have like been, yeah it wouldn't have been Captain America it would have been I Captain agree. America and like it's it's weird to say like the line does actually endear me to him and it's hard to even explain why that is but but it it honestly does in a weird way and I I think it's a good quip from him too like it's well, i'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that like that that part of it kind of makes it you know i find myself kind of wishing after he jumps out that we get one last turn back to black widow saying i don't know how do you know yeah <laughs> that would have been Maybe hilarious he does dress like but that <laughs> I, it surprises me it surprises me sam that that you're not that old-fashioned kind of person because of your um gospel band um gas station boner pill yeah well is is the thing like when I when I say that I'm not religious or old fashioned, like there is definitely a side of me that I do I do feel the spirit uh, within me, and I do still feel the need once in a while, just on the weekends, I'll kind of let loose, like spread the gospel of the gas station boner pills, uh, songs, uh, uh, religious hymns such as "Strippers Like Me Back." Yeah. Uh hooker hookers and blow. Last dinosaur. Last yep. dinosaur, that's right. Yep. Like yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh actually one one that we just wrote uh yesterday, a new a new uh, religious uh kind of gospel hymn that we, we wrote uh the other day is uh post nut clarity. Uh <laughs> <laughs> God I love y'all. <laughs> Okay. Remember, kids, always masturbate before, right before making any kind of big decision, because things things are different. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yes. Yep, that's right. <laughs> Praise the pill. Praise the pill. <laughs> I do really enjoy seeing uh, Cap kind of step into that role as a team leader and like kind of being, in some ways, yeah. being the good soldier, but not being the good soldier in the sense of like blindly following orders, like, you know, questioning orders, but at the same time looking at things with that that kind of tactical mind, kind of viewing the other members of the team like soldiers and like, this is your role, this is your role, this is your role, this is your role, and, and being able to take charge and take that authority. I think that, that, that that's what his role on the team is, is to... To be the leader. Uh, yeah, I I think it's important to have a leader that was an entertainer during World War II. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, he punched Adolf Hitler over 49 times, all right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but we see that he also hasn't really found a life for himself in in the modern day yet so yeah. he's able he like the only thing he really has is being a soldier so we see why he kind of falls into that role so uh, yeah, mm, I, yeah. I, I i actually do really i really do like the character a lot and i like the way that he's used in this movie i think he comes into himself in this movie yes yeah uh clint barton slash hawkeye gets his full introduction in this movie he had a brief brief cameo in thor but uh it's funny, he was actually my, I remember when I first saw this movie, I first walked out, he was actually my favorite character, and I, I since have come back on that a little bit, where I, I think, 
he's one of my top characters in the overall MCU. I will say that. But I think that that more has come from from kind of subsequent movies and also his TV show. But I think that he's always been a very underrated character for me. I will say that it is worth noting that for more than half of this movie, he is under Loki's control. Which I, I understand why that kind of is in terms of the structure of the movie. But he doesn't really get to be himself until kind of the third act of it. But uh, any thoughts on his overall usage in the movie? I thought that he was well written. He's not one that really stands out to me. I liked the way they used him. Uh, I liked Evil Barton. Uh, it was pretty cool. I guess that's all I got to say about that. From a personality standpoint, I would have liked to see more of him, more of his interactions. But he functioned well in the role he was given. And I also kind of get why he was sidelined the whole time. Because they've got a lot of goddamn characters they got to go through. They can't like focus on everyone the whole time. And if you do have to sideline someone... It makes sense that you sideline him, but also make him being under the control of Loki like a major impetus for, you know, Black Widow to get involved and, yeah. you know, main re- major reason for her to care. Even when he's not there, you still get an idea a little bit about the kind of person that he is. And then when he is fully there, you see that that promised personality fully realized. It's like, yeah. okay, yeah, no, this is fantastic. This is exactly the person that Natasha was talking about the whole rest of the film. Um, I do like him. He is fun. He is the... I like that even early on, we establish that he's extremely skilled and he's also kind of the guy that when he jumps out a building and repels in through a window, he's got to have to lie down for a second because that really hurt. He doesn't have the biggest role in this, but I, I do I do really like him. Um, I especially love that uh, Eye in the Sky role that he has in the last battle. It's like, okay, yeah, he is absolutely who you want as your scout. Well, that that's a lot of the reason why I really kind of took to this character from seeing it for the first time is that I just really love the role that he had in the final battle at the end. Yeah, he is sidelined for a lot of the movie, but... He, they still gave him a lot to do in in the third act, and and he just has some these incredibly badass moments. I mean, people are always, you know, making these jokes about, oh yeah, like how useful was Hawkeye during the Battle of New York? And I'm like, did we see the same movie? Because he was kicking ass, like he really <laughs> yeah. was. Like he was like the whole time, you know, j- just not knocking the the ships out of the sky. That amazing moment it's it's one of my favorite beats in 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 the movie where he shoots the one arrow at loki loki catches it and we think for a second it's like oh and then it blows up and it's like it's it's just such good you know writing and it's it's very it's a very joss whedon moment that but it's it's just yeah i really do love him in this movie i love that he is the human character you know like he and black widow are the kind of the, the human characters who they don't have special powers or high-tech suit, but they, they still hold their own in the final battle. He, I, I do think he has this very kind of entertaining, snarky, quippy personality that, that we do see. And one thing that I will say about the whole mind control thing is that I actually really like the, the, the way they portrayed it in this movie, where the characters who are under Loki's mind control still maintain their personalities. It's just everything is just about serving Loki, when they're under yeah. control, but but they still have their personalities. Like Barton still 
kind of has Barton's personality. Selvig still feels like Selvig as a person, but they just are completely devoted to whatever Loki wants them to do. So I, I think that that's kind of an interesting thing that I've always actually really liked about the way this movie was 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 kind of uh, executed. Oh, absolutely. What about Iron Man? Tony Stark. Uh, he's actually of, of the, the main Avengers. Uh, one of the last ones to get it. I guess technically Thor is actually the last, last one to be introduced, but t- Tony is introduced surprisingly late uh, considering that he's on paper again could also be the main character i know again nick fury maybe more so but this is the third movie that we've seen with tony stark as as one of the main characters and uh I think that again, every movie that he shows up and we see, we get a little bit more of his his overall kind of character arc over the course of, the, of these movies. I think that this one is kind of about him learning how to work with others and be a part of a team. I know in Iron Man two, we do finally see him starting to appreciate other people as peers, both you know Pepper as you know running the company a little more, um, and Rhodey as you know. Kind of an equal, at least in terms of using the armor. And I like that that progresses. You know, he's still... He does show a little more respect to Pepper right from the get-go and is finally slightly less narcissistic enough that S.H.I.E.L.D. would actually call him in. I do like that the whole time he's still... He's still Tony. The moment he arrives, he is planning on stealing all of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s data because he's Tony and that's just what he does. Um, He has to know everything before he operates on it. But I also like that that's not even a good or bad trait. That's just kind of who he is. He has to know as much as possible at any given time. Hates being kept in the dark. And that actually proves useful as well, as it helps them figure out how to handle the wormhole in the end. Helps them figure out, you know, what's going on with Fury. And he gets a, you know, decent schematic of the entire, uh, you know, carrier at the end so that he can fix it. I also just really love his relationship with Bruce because he's Tony, so he's flinty. So the first thing he brings up is like, oh, yeah, and I, you know, enjoy the way that you turn into a great and huge rage monster. Tony's big defining trait um, in how he deals with other people is that he's always the smartest person in the room up until he meets Bruce. And then he recognizes it's like, oh, this is actually somebody I could completely talk to as a peer for once. And I really just love their discussion because it's not just you know, a peer's intelligence, although there's that too, but it's also that peer of, you know, he gets it. They have both suffered in their lives. Um, and I, I really love that relationship starting out here. Yeah, Tony and Bruce is one of the best, like, kind of pairings. But but this thing is, like, that's what part of what makes these Avengers movies so good, uh, in particular this first one, is you can put any of these two characters together and it's going to be interesting. You're going to get interesting interactions, like... His kind of relationship with with Steve in this movie, like, we'd uh, reviewed the original X-Men movie on this podcast a couple of weeks ago, and it occurred to me while I was watching this movie that the way we see kind of the relationship or the, the animosity between Tony and Steve, that's what Wolverine and Cyclops should have been. Uh, yes. Because, like, it's so much, like, it's, it's a similar dynamic. But it's so much more organic the way that it's written in this movie as opposed to, like, Logan just meeting Scott Summers for the first time and just grabbing him by the scruff of his neck. It's like, you want to get out of my way? Like, what did this guy do to you? Like, what? As opposed to, like, like they actually built up through their interactions, like, how really different they are from each other and how much they do kind of rub up against each other, you know, personality-wise. I like that their first meeting is respectful. You know, he yeah. shows up and, you know, they're just like, oh, yeah, hi, yeah, nice to meet you. And they, 
I like that they actually do try and give it a shot first, unlike the, you know, Logan and Cyclops thing. It also helps that, like, Steve is genuinely kind of a nice guy, whereas with Cyclops, it's an informed trait that he's a nice guy. He's actually kind of a douche throughout most of the movie when we see him. Kinda. Yeah, so he's he's a douche throughout most of this movie when we first <laughs> meet him in X-Men. Whereas with this, we get to see Steve is actually, like, a decent guy, and so that animosity is less... You're not entirely taking any one person's side. You can actually see the point of view on that. And I like that. I love that. I completely agree. That is 100% what that relationship should have been in X-Men. And it's really fun to see here. That, And I do like that they never quite get over their friction, but they do learn to work past it. Yeah, I think that's important. It's sometimes you're you're going to have those those disagreements with somebody of maybe you just, someone will just rub you the wrong way, but you can you can work past it. You can still work with that person and still even if it's like even if I don't necessarily always like you, I can still respect you. And and their relationship will continue to evolve uh throughout these movies going forward as well. But uh, I think it's a really interesting kind of starting point for the relationship between Tony and Steve, which is which has always been one that's had a bit of friction in in comics and in the films. Tony is one of my uh, favorite favorites. Uh, I love him. Uh, I love the way that he's used, and I love that he's actually the real leader of the Avengers. Think very much, <laughs> and he's more compassionate, and he has a dark side, unlike somebody who will not be named that we've already <laughs> named before. And I love that he has a sense of humor. <laughs> I'm sorry, his first name is Agent. <laughs> <laughs> the the one note I want to make on that is that I love that he is constantly jesting and you know pretending that he doesn't care, but also you learn later on that he was listening the whole time during that conversation. Yeah. He does actually care about Coulson and the people around him. He's really, really bad at showing it, but he notices and he cares. I love that he I love that he comes into it and says there's no need in sacrificing yourself in a heroic way. And he's the one that actually does go for that sacrifice. And it's and it's because he doesn't have an, any other choice. Everything has run out. He has no other choice but to but to do what he has to do to run that nuke through that portal. Yeah, the nuke's gonna the, if the nuke's gonna blow no matter what, even if he gets it a safe yes. di- a quote unquote safe distance away, it's like they're gonna be doing fallout. Like you know, exactly. like look, there's a fucking portal into outer space. I can shove this into. It's like is that yes. what, I don't even know if he necessarily even thought that he was gonna blow up the uh, the ship or not. It was just like I just no. gotta get this into outer space. You know? I don't think that was part of the plan. Those yeah. yeah, and I love that about Tony. Yes, he doesn't believe in blind sacrifice, but he does believe that sometimes you have to step up to the plate. Uh, I don't think he. I don't think he knew whether he was gonna make it back or not. I don't think that was yeah. running through his mind at the time. I think he was just thinking, "I got to get rid of this thing." I agree. Well, and that is the thing. It's like, and that, that's something that I'll kind of push back against something that Steve says. It's like you're not the guy to make the sacrifice play. Tony is constantly making the sacrifice play. When you think about yes. these movies, he actually does at the end of Iron Man one too. Yeah. Um. Yeah. When when he uh, tells Pepper to like blow, blow the arc reactor while he's still yeah. on the roof. I think a lot of it is that they don't like each other. They had animosity, but they also were still working through preconceptions of who each other were and he just didn't know who tony was as a person just fundamentally maybe it's just that steve is a fucking (laughs) douchebag 
But I do think that Steve, when Steve sees um, Tony fly up into that wormhole with that nuke, like, I think that that moment gives him a new respect for Tony that he didn't have before. I actually do think, like, like I think he realizes, I think it's one of those things, like, actually fighting side by side with Tony in that Battle of New York as a fellow soldier, essentially. I think that um, Steve does see Tony in a different way, even if they're still not always going to get along and there's still going to be some animosity. I think that I think both of them actually come to see each other in, in a different way after kind of fighting with each other in, in that battle. And they both get, get kind of a respect for each other that's forged out of kind of being brothers in arms. And Steve ruins it all. Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> I blame Steve! Not, not yet, she Fuck you, Steve! Not Fuck you! <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait till we get to that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually, I'm actually excited to get into that one too. Let's, let's go. Um, <laughs> so I want to get to Thor, who is is actually the one who's introduced last in the movie. What do we think about? Do we feel like he should have showed up w- earlier in the movie, or do we think he popped up in the right time? Do you think? Because he he technically shows up kind of late in the movie, re- relatively speaking. That's okay. I don't know. I think it's I think it's the right time because I think that. At this point is where news would have gotten back to the ass guardians that Loki has popped up and all of the ass guardians are like, hey, we got to get our asses in gear and go after Loki. That's a good point. Where were the Warriors three? Like, come on, guys. (laughs) I mean, Heimdall can't see Loki, so it would have had to have traveled so it would have taken some time for him to to do what needed you know, to be done Heindel to get there. might not be able to see loki directly but he can see some shits happening on earth and put the pieces together that all oh, loki yeah. you know mm, like, this seems like the sort of fuckery that loki would be involved in <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> this fuckery makes me think of loki Thor! <laughs> mm, you're right, Heimdall. This is Loki fuckery. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those things where his the specific method of having a ride there just vaguely saying it's like, oh, Orton expended a lot of dark energy to bring you here is kind of convenient. It's like, okay, the ending of Thor did make it very clear that it was going to be a while before anyone could get to Earth. But... Also, I just really enjoy him being here, and I genuinely think he improves the movie by being there, so I'm not complaining too much about that, about the specific mechanism. And of course, how he gets back makes sense. Obviously, whatever little device he's got is powered by the Tesseract, so it's like, okay, that makes sense. He can get back easy once he's got a hold of that. I find it amazing, though, that we haven't said one time in this critique that there are too many goddamn characters in this movie. Because usually we are saying that, but the pacing of this movie, and I think one thing about holding Thor back until he's absolutely needed, I think that helps in that pacing. I think it helped give some of the smaller characters, I hate saying smaller characters, but some of the other characters with less to do, it gave them time to shine. I was actually going to say that one thing I genuinely really love about this movie is that the introduction of each of the characters, the timing of that introduction, the way that flows into the overall plot is actually brilliant. They're perfect segues that still keep the plot moving forward yeah. while introducing them and giving you a good understanding of, okay, here's a short rundown, who this character is, what's their personality, what's yeah. some of their other relationships to other people in this world, 
and we're still going to move the plot forward at the same time. It just works so well. It's, and it's great. And time is not wasted repeating something that happened in another movie. Yeah. And I think that makes the whole difference in this movie. That's true, but they do. I do actually think that this movie works. It's not as good, but I do think this movie works if you haven't seen any of the other Phase 1 movies. Because yeah. I do think that they actually yeah. do a good job of introducing the characters, like you said, Zach. Yeah. It's like they don't go in. All right, we don't have to recap the entire Captain America First Avenger but we get he was a soldier in World War II. We get those little flashes. We get he was a super soldier from World War II. Boom. He was in ice. Now he's here. Great. That's yep. what, that's all we need to know. You know, yep. like we get who Tony is. We get who I I think the one who has like the biggest like introduction is is probably Banner. And that's probably because we're also getting yeah. used to seeing a new actor playing Banner at the same time. Exactly. But the, like but 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 you're right. And I, I really do have to to kind of reiterate what you said, Zach. Like the, the pacing and the timing of the beginning of the movie is so perfect of just these it really is smart lines of like the last line in one scene goes right into transitions into yes. the next scene you know nick fury will say no it's won by soldiers and then we cut to the soldier you know uh uh, uh steve will say something about oh you should have left it the ocean and then we cut to an underwater scene it's like it's yep. so perfect the way yep. it just flows like yeah it's it and 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 i also agree that i think i actually do think that thor was introduced when he needs to be introduced in the movie and i i actually agree like the the the, the smartness of the Pacing, introducing the characters one at a time instead of throwing a bunch at us all at once. Like I think that yeah. that was, I think that was a, a big part of the key to not not even just make sure that the characters are introduced before we introduce a new one, but kind of getting us used to these characters before introducing a new one. And yes, it does help a lot that if we've been following these movies up to this point, we do know these characters already. We do know Thor. We do know Tony. We do know. Steve so that 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 definitely helps and is a big part of it as well but it's really it's just such a well-constructed movie in terms of the structure the pacing of it it's it's really skillfully put together and again it is one of those things like him him coming back to earth I think that I've I've always been very conflicted about this kind of thing because I, I I do think that having like a whole sequence of how are we getting Thor back to Earth would have dragged the pacing down too much at the end of the yeah, day. Yeah. But at the same time, I do think it takes weight away from the ending of Thor of the whole thing of the Bifrost is destroyed. There's no way back to Earth. But you know, at the same time, I, I I go back and forth on it because there is even a line that Loki has in the first uh, Thor movie of there there are other pathways, there are other passages. So yeah. it, it I, I it's something I constantly go back and forth on for myself, but at the same time, I think that it was done well overall. Uh, just cons- like it's it's a bit of a throwaway line. It's like, oh, how much dark energy did Odin need to conjure up? It's a bit of a throwaway line, but like again, I I think that anything else would have honestly probably. I think yeah. it probably would have dragged the pacing down a little too much to to have had to overcome that particular issue. Yeah, exactly. It's just plausible enough that it's like it's not the most satisfying explanation, but it's an explanation that works. And, you know, even in terms of weight, it's like, okay, so it's not great, but it does kind of give you the idea that if Odin had tried this without the Tesseract to get back, it would have been a one way trip. And it still would have been a big decision for Thor to choose stay on Earth forever, stay in Asgard forever without the Bifrost, you know, if he wanted to force Odin into that decision. So it still works, and it means that the ending of Thor still has doesn't lose all of its weight, but I do agree that it it loses a little bit, but not all of it. Yeah. I, I also just love his role in this movie, both to be a 
fantastic bruiser and also the very long view character, someone who has been seen a lot of wars himself. But I do also love how he humanizes Loki in a lot of ways, because Loki is a bit of an asshat throughout most of this film. Um, <laughs> very self-preening, very self-doubt. And every single time that Thor fights or interacts with him, he is doing so from the perspective of a brother. He is just pleading with him the whole time to give this up, to come home, to stop being such an ass. He's not at any point pushing Loki away. He's always trying to bring him closer together the entire movie. And I love that. I, I love that that, especially Loki's reaction to that, is that is, is kind of Loki's thing, is that he's very conflicted on how he feels about Thor, about his family, about his childhood. He's not 100% hating on it, even when he's saying that he is. There's always that little bit of hesitance, and even that line near the end in the final battle where he just says it's too late to stop him. It's like, you almost think it's like, he almost probably did want to go back with Thor at that particular moment, but just realized that he'd gotten himself in way too deep, especially with Thanos. It's it's interesting. I, I love that role in it. Yeah, and it's interesting to me as well, like, two kind of things about what, what you just said. Like, in terms of the way Thor approaches Loki, like, like you said, approaching him like a brother, I, what I love about that is that we really see the effect of the character arc that Thor went through in his movie. The fact that he mm -hmm. is now a more conscientious, more empathetic person than he was, and we see that carry over into this movie, and that's also one thing that's really really effective and smart about this movie is that nobody's character arc was kind of reset from their solo movie. Like everything that's, that's gone, like everything that Tony's gone through is, is, is absolutely carried over, you know, the way that he treats Pepper, like all of that is carried over from the first two Iron Man movies. What Thor, the, the arc that Thor went through is totally carries over from his movie. The arc that Steve went through carries over from his movie. So I, I, I think that all of that is really, even, uh, even Banner, even though, uh, you know, the, the Incredible Hulk as a movie feels a bit more far removed. Like there is that, that thing of, um, at the end of that movie, him starting to maybe embrace the Hulk and starting to learn how to control the Hulk a little bit more, which we see at the end of the Incredible Hulk film, absolutely carries over into this film as well. So I think all of that is 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 a big part of this movie. But as far as Loki himself, it is interesting that in, in Thor, this is the second movie, of course, where Loki is the main antagonist. In Thor, he's kind of the sympathetic villain, as we kind of said. And in this movie, he's really not sympathetic at all, in my opinion. I think he's just a straight-up yeah. bastard. But it still works, and it still works in the context of Loki's overall character arc over the course of this entire universe. So here's the thing about Loki in this movie. He is much more sadistic in this movie than we see him anywhere else, and that's because it's not Loki. Um, it's been confirmed by multiple, uh, by Marvel, uh, by more, multiple magazines and online spots that the scepter was not only used to put people under Loki's mind control, but secretly Thanos made it to where it kept Loki under his mind control. So anytime Loki tried to defy Thanos, he would be in pain. He would be put under this pressure, kind of like we see him in the beginning when Loki first appears, he's not healthy. He's tired. He's been tortured. He's been pressured. We see a more sadistic Loki because 
it's not really him doing what he wants to do. Sure, Loki wants to rule something. He Loki doesn't give a shit what he rules. You could give him a Rubik's Cube and say, here you go, this is your world, you're ruling it. And Loki would be happy. But there again, there's that other side of Loki to where he wants to know more. He's the god of mischief and chaos, and he needs to know more. That's the reason why he is the god of mischief and chaos, is because he just keeps growing. He wants to know what's out there that hasn't been explained to him more. And we start to see that, that side of him in this movie, but it seems to be the side where he's trying to fight Thanos's mind control. I will use uh, the fight between him and Thor. Uh, as a small example, because he takes his dagger and he stabs Thor. But that's something that he did when Thor and he were playing as kids. They talk about it in Thor Ragnarok, and they giggle about it. Not trying to kill him, not trying to stop him. I I don't accept that. When he fights Captain America, he puts away his little scepter, and he fights Captain America fist to fist. He does not want to defeat Captain America. He wants to put Captain America in his place. He wants Captain America to know, I am Loki, and I am superior to you, because that's the way Loki is. Now, that's a piece of Loki. But, he's not really trying. There are there are quite a few signs throughout, especially with him having this mind control scepter. He doesn't use it near enough. And and some people say it's it, it's a plot hole, but I say it's Loki fighting Thanos' mind control, not because it's not what Loki wants, because Loki does want to rule something, but he doesn't want to be enslaved by Thanos. He doesn't want what comes with ruling the Earth. And he was told by Thanos that if he messes this up, he is dead meat. He will wish that he kills him. But in this movie, I will always believe that Loki is having a, a mental battle with himself. He's trying to warn the Avengers. He's trying to he's trying to lose on purpose, but it can't look like he's trying to lose. Loki speaks in riddles. I don't 100% agree in the sense that I don't think it is, in Loki's particular case, straight up mind control. With that said, I do agree that the spear is affecting him and affecting how he's thinking and acting because... A few things. First of all, one thing about the mind control that I find interesting is that Selvig and Hawkeye, when you notice the scenes, when you look over them, they're not actually, when you think about it, reporting to Loki. Like, they're working towards the same goal, they're trying to get the portal open, but the way they're talking is that the Tesseract or the Spear is talking to them, and that's what's really giving them their orders. Loki is there to help facilitate things. He's the one who did it, but he's not actually in command. Um, it is whatever force is marshalling the Tesseract, whatever force is marshalling the Mind Stone. That's what's directly giving um, yes. Hawkeye and Selvig their orders. Secondly, also, in the scene where the Avengers start fighting, we get that close-up of the Mind Stone, and it's resonating, vibrating almost. And, you know, Banner grabs it almost mindlessly. Whether it's the spear, whether or not it's the Mind Stone itself, and given how the Mind Stone acts with Vision and, you know, with Wanda's powers later on, I'm inclined to think it, that it's more the stone in the spear and not with the stone, how the stone would act normally by itself. 
but the spear has a corrupting effect of some sort. It is trying to get across an agenda. And I don't know, I don't think it's quite as one-to-one as Thanos is giving him an order so much as it is that it's giving us direction in general. My ultimate argument that Loki wasn't trying to win is throughout this movie, when we see him fight, he doesn't use his teleporting like he does in the other movies. He doesn't use his shape-shifting when he's fighting. He doesn't use his telekinesis. He doesn't use his mind manipulation. The character goes to Odin eventually and takes Odin out completely and puts him on Earth like a raving old, uh, mindless, homeless guy. I don't think Loki is actually trying to win. I think he's fighting whatever force is controlling him, whether it's Thanos, the mind control stone, the mind stone or whatever. I think he is actively fighting it. I don't think he's trying. I think in the Loki series, it's even brought up a little that he's kind of self-defeating, whether or not, I don't even, I'm not even sure if he's conscious of it. Just I don't know that if he, he is, is aware that there is some sort of struggle. Yes. And you're right that throughout the entire film, he is sweating. He's shaky. He's got dark circles under his eyes. Yeah, I think it's, I, I do think it's subconscious, but. Yeah, for, for all his claims of dominance, he doesn't seem to be in full control of himself either, or at least he's not at his best. I actually think him claiming dominance is even more proof because we tell ourselves things when we're failing. And I think that's what Loki does. Loki's cocky and he's an asshole. But whenever he slips, he tells himself, hey, you got this. You got this. I'm superior. I'm with Zach that I think that I I like the idea and I agree with the idea that the spear is affecting him. But I don't think he's under control. And I think that he I think that he at least thinks that he's doing what he wants to do. But there is something to be said about the fact that he is a bit self-defeating. But there there are things to me. I think that there's actually compelling evidence that he's actually not under, that he's maybe under influence that of the spear is making him worse and he's making him more sadistic, but that he is still kind of in control of what he's doing and he's not necessarily in, in some kind of mental battle because, like, I, I look at scenes where he's extracting the, the one dude's eyeball and, and he has that, that you know, sadistic, like, he's enjoying it while he's doing it, which, and I, I just, I feel like what, Really, the spear is bringing out the worst qualities of Loki. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that that's what it is. I think that Loki... I think Loki is being manipulated by Thanos, sure. Yes. Yeah. But I think that Loki... I think he buys into his own bullshit in this movie, but I think it's because yeah. the spear is bringing out the worst qualities of him. And I also think to a certain degree it's kind of psychologically where he is at this point. He feels really abandoned, like he he got thrown off the bridge by... Thor at the end of that movie. We don't know what crazy realms he kind of fell through between that movie and this movie. I think that his whole thing was in Thor was that he, he just wanted the respect of Odin. And I think that now that he realizes that he's never going to have that and he feels he's never going to have, he wants revenge. He doesn't even think he's going to have Thor's respect. So there's this thing of like, he, he feels like he has nothing to lose too. So he's just like, fuck it. I'll go, I'll go conquer the earth, but it, but it's still, it's still ultimately a cry for attention more than anything else. The quote about him being under control, I'll read it. This is the quote from Marvel. Arriving at the sanctuary through a wormhole caused by the Bifrost, Loki met the other ruler of the ancient race of extraterrestrials, the Chitari and Thanos. 
offering the god of mischief dominion over his brother's favorite realm, Earth, Thanos requested the Tesseract in return. Gifted with a scepter that acted as a mind-control device, Loki would be able to influence others. Unbeknownst to Loki, the scepter was also influencing him, fueling his hatred over his brother Thor and the inhabitants of Earth. So, a little bit of what you said, Sam. It, yeah. it brings out the worst parts of him so that they can use that chaos in him. And I think a good sign of what you're saying, Sam, as well, is that in the scene in the cage when he's talking to Black Widow and he goes into that foul, sadistic speech um, about what he's going to have Barton do to her, the sphere is nowhere near him at the time. That's just kind of Loki being a dick. Yeah. That's yeah. all him. So I think it's I think it's a little bit of of all of the above at, at the at the end of the day, but but that but that that quote actually goes along with the way that I kind of interpreted it, which yeah, is that exactly it's it's a it's a combination of factors. It's a combination that he is genuinely at his lowest point psychologically, emotionally, and also the fact that he's feeling the he's feeling the uh, the influence of the spear. Yeah. I, I think a well-written script is where you do have to read between the lines like that. For sure. I also want to give a shout-out to the character The Other, who's the, the Shitari uh, that, that, that Loki uh, speaks to in, in a couple of scenes and has that scene with Thanos at the end, just because The Other is played by Alexis Denisov, who's Fuck unrecognizable. Yes. But yes, but who who uh, Buffy and Angel fans will know as uh, Wesley from from those shows, uh, played, that, played that character, so. One of the greatest characters ever! He's a great character. He's 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 so good on on Angel. Yeah, he works so well on that show. Rogue Demon Hunter. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he is great in Whedon's version of Much Ado About Nothing. That's such he a good is. version of that. Yeah. Oh it's my such a good god, movie in general, he is. But. Benedict. Oh yeah, yeah. I love him as Benedict. Uh, and we we touched on Coulson, but like I mean, Coulson is kind of the heart of this movie. At the end of the day, I mean, I, I think that he's he's such a like I think like we all liked Coulson from his previous appearances, but I think this is the movie where that made everybody kind of fall in love with this character. And like to me, like the best scene with him is where he he's the one who confronts Loki with that the the destroyer gun. And there's just something about again, it's another thing that I really like about Whedon's writing is the way that he has. The, the way that he'll always have, like, the little guy, the person, the character who's not the superhero, ends up being the one who kind of stands up against evil, which I think is also so beautifully expressed in the scene in Stuttgart, where the one uh, kind of elderly uh, German man is the one that stands up to Loki, so which is it's one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie. Yeah, always men like you. Yeah, that's that that's one there's so many quotes I love in that in this movie, but that's one of my favorite quotes in the movie is is that there there are always men like you. But I also another thing I really love about that scene is exactly what you were saying, Troy, that you know, you think he might not want to win, and Coulson straight up points that out to him. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's the reason you're not going to win, is you lack conviction. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to bring that line up, yeah. I I also love what Coulson says, you're going to lose. It's in your nature. He's he's literally calling him a loser. He's like, you're a loser. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and I love, I love that that speech, I love that that speech is only, he's only saying shit to piss Loki off long enough so that he can see what the gun does. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's what it does. <laughs> All right, this thing takes like 20 seconds to charge up. I guess I got to kill some time. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
so good. <laughs> yeah, great, great death scene. Really heart heart wrenching death scene. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. it's a powerhouse. Exactly. Oh, yeah. It's one of those things. I mean, it's kind of like, uh, you know, like even if we take Agents, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as fully canon, it still affects you, like, in the same way that, like, yes. you know, Wrath of Khan, Spock's death. Even though we know he's coming back, that scene still gets you. It it's does, like, yeah. It's the, same, it's the same thing for me with Coulson. And if yeah. we take the movies completely by themselves, Coulson does stay dead, you know? He, he only is alive yeah. in his TV show, but I still kind of hope they bring all the shows back around, but, you know. Me too. We'll see what ends yeah. up happening. Definitely. We're introduced to Maria Hill, played by Kobe Smolders in this movie. Uh, any thoughts on her? I think she, I think she's a fun character. Fucking badass. She is badass. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of a minor thing. We don't get a ton of her personality. We do get the idea that she's kind of almost Terminator like and how unstoppable he is. Like she, every single time she gets thrown across the room, every single time she gets buried under rubble, every single time that like someone shoots at her. Like, five seconds later, she's, like, crawling out and being like, all right, we're still on mission. What the fuck is going on? Okay. Yep. Unstoppable. <laughs> yeah, just, I just love how unstoppable she is. Um, just, She's completely unflappable. It's great. I like that she trusts Fury um, very much, even if she doesn't 100% agree, but she's also willing to question him, if only to, you know, get a better understanding of where things are going on. Again, we don't see a lot of her, but it's still a good introduction. I also like that they use her in Agents of Shield for a few episodes. Well, that that kind of those kinds of cameos really help to legitimize uh, Agents it of does. Shield. It's like, look, this is a show about Shield. We are going to have Fury show up in a couple of episodes because he does also, and we're going to have Maria Hill show up in some episodes too because those are main Shield agents. It makes sense they yes. would be in a show about Shield, you know. Yeah. Yes. So I, I think that that definitely helps to legitimize that show whenever whenever you had those cameos fr- from movie characters for sure. But yeah, I, I enjoy Maria Hill and like it's it's interesting again going back to deleted scenes. Like I think the deleted scenes from this movie actually go more into. Her maybe not actually completely trusting Fury all the time but still being willing to go along with it. But I think that the way it was ultimately cut was it, it comes across like you're saying, Zach, of she she trusts him, but she's willing to question him. And I do think that there's a little bit of friction of you almost see that kind of uh that 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 thing in her head of like, well, if if I was in charge if I was the director of Shield, I would do things a little bit differently, but of still respecting that. that authority type of thing, you know. Yeah. At the end of the day, I, I do absolutely love that you're right. She you do see her like questioning decisions and absolutely get the impression that's like if and or when she becomes director, she would handle things very differently. But also when push comes to shove and she's forced to test her loyalties, she chooses Fury. Exactly. You know, when the council decides to nuke New York, she picks Fury. She stays on his side, yeah. even when other agents you know, decide to go past that. Exactly. Well, I, I also think that that's one of the times where she, if she were the director, she actually probably would have made the same call that Fury did. I think she would have been yeah. just as much against that. Of course, like, apparently some S.H.I.E.L.D. agents are just complete, just mindless yes-men who are just do whatever. <laughs> that, that I'll, nu- I'll nuke New York. Exactly. It. I it's it. like, I, 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 it's like, like, I thought about that, like, with the whole, like, it's one of those things, like, I, I, I also think that it would have, like, dragged the movie down, but, like, I, I would have liked to have, you know, seen, like, maybe some kind of hesitation on this, the side of the pilot for, like, it's like, 
nope, I was I, interested in mindless drone. It's like, nope, they ordered me to do this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nuke New York, you know? It's like... That, yeah, that guy had no hesitation whatsoever. Good yeah, lord. That was, that was a man who... That, that's, that's lawful neutral energy right there. That's I will follow my orders no matter what they are. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you ordered me to, to shoot my entire family? Sure, all right, yes, sir. All right. <laughs> Soldiers follow orders. Whoa, 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 whoa. What's the, what's the old joke about this? About the agents, you know, they go in a room and say, oh, your wife's tied to the chair, shoot her. First agent goes in and says, oh, I couldn't do it. All right, you're fired. Second agent goes in, tries to fire. No, I can't do it. You're fired. Third agent goes in. They come out. It's like, oh, and uh, how'd you do? Well, uh, turns out some idiot loaded the gun with blanks, so I had to beat her to death with a pistol. (laughs) (laughs) Son of a bitch! (laughs) Best CIA agent ever. That is absolutely the same guy who was piloting that plane. It's like, I don't care about that order. That's that's what you told me to do. (laughs) Son of a bitch. You know, one scene that we haven't touched on yet that I, re- I think it's just a really fun scene is that after the Stuttgart sequence, the forest battle where Iron Man fights Thor and then Cap gets involved. I think it's such a cool, it's just such a fun scene. It's like, I feel like every superhero team up moment, you, every superhero team up movie, you have to have a scene where they fight each other physically. Like that always just has to happen for some reason. It's kind of part of the formula, but I don't know. It's, it's a really fun scene. Like the whole thing where uh, Thor charges up uh, uh, accidentally charges up awesome. Iron Man's suit. It's yeah. awesome. And then, mm-hmm. and then seeing Mjolnir uh, hit Cap Shields and the effects of just the weird shockwave. I don't know. It's just an oh, awesome yeah. scene. I think it's so much Vibranium fun. Vibranium at work. Exactly. Oh, yeah. No, that was, that was super fun. I love that they learned to fight together by fighting against each other. Exactly. Yes. They learned what each other can do. Intimately. <laughs> I also really love how it sets up how unsettling Loki being there is. Because at the start, you kind of get the impression it's like, all right, maybe we caught Loki. You know, it seemed a little too easy, but okay, whatever. And then during this entire battle while they're fighting, he is just sitting on a rock watching. <laughs> and they all kind of realize that. And it's like, he's kind of run away at any point or thrown up an illusion but or done whatever. Okay, we're really unsettled because he does genuinely seem to want to get captured by us. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're not paying attention to that. That's the thing. They're not. But we as the audience get that as a hint. It's like, uh, They're too okay. busy measuring penises. <laughs> yeah, that they are. Oh, completely. <laughs> completely. <laughs> They're showing off the hammers, and this be not the hammer. <laughs> I kind of wish that they had used that that Thor charging Iron Man. I kind of wish that maybe they had used that somewhere in the climax of like, all right, big guy, charge yeah. me up, something yeah. like that. You know, it would have been a good payoff, but at the same time, like that's like the nitpickiest of nitpicks. You know, no, but it would have been a great callback. It would have been a it great callback, yeah. yeah. Or, or like, I, I also like when they think uh, like Tony's. Tony might be dead, and then like Hulk, like wait, like I like that Hulk wakes him up by yelling at him. But I thought I actually remember thinking in the movie, I thought what they were gonna do was Thor was gonna like defibrillate him with a yeah, lightning bolt I or something. So I thought 
I thought that was what was going to happen. And that would have also been a good callback. But at the same time, just just the unexpectedness of Hulk just screaming at him. And just like, oh, what the hell? <laughs> oh, my God. It is, it is actually kind of a, a hilarious moment, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. The helicarrier is awesome. We're introduced to the helicarrier in this movie. And I love the reveal of we think it's just an aircraft carrier at first. And then Cap thinks it might be a submarine, and then they find out it's a big fucking airship. Like, it's just so, like, <laughs> the helicarrier is just iconic from the comics, and I, I just think that yeah. they did such a good job of bringing it to life, of being this, like, this big Starship Enterprise-type thing flying through the sky. I agree. It's just awesome. Is it the most practical vessel in the world? No. Is it really damn cool? Yes. And any issues you might have over its efficiency or its practicality, are 100% fixed, in my opinion, by Cap handing uh, Fury that $10 bill. It's like, okay, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting that. All right. <laughs> well, it's, it's one of those things, like, the overall, not just the pacing of this movie, but the pacing of the MCU and in, in the way that it escalates and the pacing in which it escalates from movie to movie is actually really smart that we start off with Iron Man, which is the actual technology is sci-fi. Like it's not, it's not necessarily realistic, but it feels a little more, it feels almost more connected to our world in a way. And then with each movie they, they come out with, it gets a little more sci-fi and a little more out there and a little, and, and yeah. like, I feel like the helicarrier was just another, like, it's one of those things, like I can wrap my brain around. This feels like it's of the same universe that Iron Man could exist. But then yes. we're also getting, like, you know... We're, we're pushing it forward. Yeah, Thor is, like, a little more out there. Hulk is a little more out there. Like, it's things like that. And then eventually we can get to a movie like, you know, something something like Eternals or something like Shang-Chi, which is straight-up mystical. Or, you know, like, we're yeah. able to, to, like, go further and further down that, that kind of line. And it's not something I mentioned at the time in the movie. I like how, like, the big sci-fi conceit of Iron Man is we have an energy source that's that strong and that small. And the rest of it's kind of believable. It's yeah, like, yeah. okay, they go into mentioning what tech you can add onto it. And the big issue with all that tech is how you power it. Okay, we got the one sci-fi conceit. And that's that explains the rest. The rest makes sense from there. And then it just builds forward. Exactly. So with the Battle of New York itself, we've already touched on this sequence. But again, I have to reiterate how much I love the fact that they gave each of the Avengers their own role. That yeah. mm -hmm. all of them, all six of them felt important. Uh, I mean, just that iconic, you know, that big trailer shot of that, that 360, you know, pose. Like, it's one of those things, like, those kinds of superhero group pose shots can often feel, like, overly staged or whatever. And this shot almost goes into that territory, but it just works so well in context. And it's such a great moment in the movie. I have, like, two tropes that I don't know the name of but show up frequently that I despise. Uh, when it comes to superhero stuff, one of them is called a uh, young woman breathlessly standing on top of, of a rooftop waiting for a superhero, which is exactly what it sounds like. You have an otherwise intelligent character who loses all sense and reason and just breathlessly stands on top of a rooftop waiting for a superhero to show up and change her world. And I'm like, oh, God. And then the other one is group of superheroes stands in a line because they can't think of what they need to do, which did not happen here. You know, as you said, that big hero shot is a cool 360 shot showing them actively preparing and watching their entire surroundings the whole time. They don't awkwardly stand in a line to look like a group at any point. They just are in action in a way that is dynamically together. And 
yeah, that's harder to do, but it works so much better. Here's my big thing that I'm going to say, as, as far as like things I haven't mentioned about the Battle of New York in general, the big thing I'm going to say about this, which is we've seen a lot of movies where there's a giant battle in a big city, often New York, as it is in this movie, where there's all this, you know, just this destruction of property, buildings, you know, getting smashed, cars fl- flipping around, the heroes kicking ass and all that. What makes this one of the best versions, one of the best examples of that kind of trope that we've seen time and time again is the fact that, yes, this it's a big bombastic fight with a lot of destruction and all that stuff, but the entire time, the hero's main priority is saving as many people as possible, not yeah. just kicking yes. ass. That, I think, makes this so important. It's one of those things, it's the thing that makes them actual heroes, is the fact that, like, you know, yes. Cap's, especially Cap, like, all of them, like, they're, 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 his whole thing is, like, what's our strategy for saving people? Like, this isn't about kicking ass, this is about saving people, protecting yeah. as many people as we possibly can. And as much as I love... Man of Steel, it's, that's kind of the thing that I was missing from, like, that battle in particular, is is just the kind of careless, just, like, how much destruction and death can we cause? And I, I like the fact that there's so much more emphasis is placed on protecting people in, the, in, this, in this scene. The one defense I'll give to Man of Steel is also something that is also a, you know, a big plus in the point of Avengers... Which is that that particular version of Superman had not actually ever fought someone uh, before that week. He's not a good fighter. He doesn't really know how to fight superhero-wise. Multiple times, he makes big mistakes during the fight. And he tries, to his credit, you can actually see a few times where he tries to take Zod out of the city. He's just bad at it. And he's doing it all by himself. And he doesn't know what he's doing. And then you cut to Avengers, and these characters are working together, and they do know what they're doing. They have been at this for a while, all of them. Um, They're more experienced, and I like how all of that comes into play. You see them working on that and capitalizing it. Um, It's also just really good character moments throughout the fight. It's not just action. It really plays to all their strengths. And yeah, and those character moments are what makes this, because it's a fairly long sequence, but it's what makes the sequence engaging the entire way through, as opposed to like, you know, Transformers 3, where it's like, it's just this 45 minute long action sequence where it's just dumb, you know, robots smashing into each other and smashing into buildings. Barely barely discernible CGI robots smashing each other in the face. Exactly. And it just, it just gets boring really quickly. This, this sequence, like it stays engaging the entire way through. And it is because of those character moments, you know, like here's, here's, you know, the the whole beat of Steve saving the people in in the cafe. It's like, uh, you know, Tony going through the the belly of the beast at one point. Like there's so many different creative and interesting things that are happening throughout this whole sequence. And it's so incredibly well done. As far as like kind of the end end of the movie goes, we have two credit scenes. One which is the reveal of Thanos for the first time, which we're going to meet a a few movies from now. Uh, I think it's a good scene. There is a feeling that they definitely hadn't quite figured out who Thanos was going to be in the MCU yet. Just just based on this one scene. But it's still a good kind of setup. Great, babe. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think it was a good beginning. Yeah. I completely agree with you in the sense that comics Thanos is a little bit different, is actually quite a bit different motivation-wise from MCU Thanos. MCU Thanos is 
a man on a mission, and he's got an almost religious zeal for remaking the world, making it better, and then in Endgame, eventually deciding to become a new god of the world. Comics Thanos, to give an example, recently there's an entire comic of Thanos just randomly picking a man from the day of his birth and just constantly ruining his life every birthday for no reason (laughs) whatsoever. He never explains himself to them. He doesn't kill a man. He doesn't threaten him. He doesn't ever explain why he does this. The one time that he gives any sort of explanation is the one year he missed his birthday because the Avengers like shoved him in the negative zone and the next birthday he's like, I'm so sorry I missed your birthday. I'm going to make it up to you by like doing it twice what I was going to do last year. And the guy's like, why? (laughs) Why? Never explains himself the whole time. And that's comic Thanos. He's obsessed with death. He is a weird, crazy asshole who almost... He's also in love with Hela, the goddess of, of death, so... Yeah, he is a man who almost wants his own destruction as much as anything. Yeah. That line at the end, it's like, oh, it's to court death. And he's like, I like that. I like the sound of that. It almost looks as though for a second at the end of this movie, they were going to go a little more comics accurate version. I'm kind of glad they didn't. Um, I do like the version that they had in the end um, for the MCU. But I definitely agree. They did not. They did not have Thanos' arc planned no. in this movie. But they did capitalize on what was set up in this movie very well later on. Well, that's the thing. It's like, you can never tell that they didn't have it planned. But at the same time, like, what they had established was basic and kind of bare bones enough that they were still able to pivot in a way that none of it feels like it conflicts with what we have what we kind of see in this movie at the same time. Obviously, it's it's not Josh Brolin yet. And you can kind of, you can kind of tell, like, even just his, his kind of facial expressions are... are not it, it, it just it feels like a different energy i guess yeah but it still works and it still works as a reveal for thanos granted this was also the kind of post-credit scene where the vast majority of movie going audiences including myself who actually was already a marvel fan going into this movie i remember seeing that credit scene and be like who the fuck is that like <laughs> <laughs> That was awesome, I think. I did not know who Thanos was. Like, even as a Marvel fan, I did not know who Thanos was at that time. I actually thought they were setting up the scrolls because, like, from his chin, he looked like a scroll to me. It was like, oh, is he a scroll? Is that Super Scroll or somebody? But that, but no, it was was one of those things of like, but that that was what I thought first. And I found out, like, saw an article or something saying that was Thanos and explaining who Thanos was. Like, okay. I guess I guess that that'll be kind of our end game villain end game, but it's it's a good it's a good scene in terms of just kind of teasing something you know to come, and I think that they capitalized upon that very well, even if they did kind of maybe pivot in terms of what originally they might have done with that. And then, of course, to me, the funniest post credit scene in the entire MCU is is where they're just sitting around the table eating shawarma. Like I just shawarma. Yep. <laughs> I, I Let's just get some hear, shawarma. It's it's a perfect scene. It's a moment of zen. That's that's exactly what it is. It's just it's like all right. I guess they they did they did go out and get shawarma. Okay. <laughs> it's a perfect scene, and it was it was done. I mean, the whole shawarma thing was a Robert Downey Jr. ad lib, and then yeah. they decided to actually yeah. they literally filmed this scene like the night of like I think the initial premiere, like the Hollywood premiere of Avengers. And like, like I think like somebody like Joss Whedon at the premiere was like, oh, and we're gonna go film another scene for the movie right now. It's like, what the movie's done? It's like, but is it though? And then they went and shot this scene, and then and, and 
end up in the movie. But it's like, of course, that's also why uh, Chris Evans is like, I, I love that he's like holding his like hand in front of his mouth. Like it, it actually is actually got perfect just because Chris Evans had had a, had a beard at that point that he was covering up. But yeah. um, but it's it's just a perfect scene. It's a perfect perfect post credit scene. It just it just nails that weird awkward coworker <laughs> lunch. <It's> like, yeah. <laughs> It's also just like this kind of anticlimax of like, oh, it's like this is like the spoils of our victory. It's like they've been through this like incredible experience. It's like now, all right, we're eating shawarma. Okay. It's <laughs> okay, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Happy ending. Well, I think we're ready to go into overall thoughts. Zach, I'll let you start this week. Yeah, this is just an extremely well-crafted movie that does a ton of service uh, to all of its characters. It is... Perhaps the single most successful, biggest team-up movie, um, taking all these characters from these franchises and really giving them service. Um, they all feel like they are, you know, as deeply appreciated as they were in their original films. And the end result is much stronger. And it's, again, just ridiculously well-written. Um, I 100% agree that Joss Whedon is a fantastic filmmaker even if he is a massive asshole who I would never want to work with. And if he never gets like another script again with, unless he like goes through massive amounts of therapy and self-reflection, I can understand like not wanting to give him any projects ever again, but this explains why he was able to do it so long. Cause he is a real, cause this movie is extremely well-made and is both a really fun action flick and also does great character work with them as well. Yeah, I got to give it a 10 out of 10. I think the film was real, well executed. Um, I loved being able to argue back and forth about the Loki thing for years before they said, yes, he was under mind control. I love that there were bits and pieces of this movie that you see throughout some of the relationships. It was a great setup movie for the Avengers. And every time I sit down and watch it, I enjoy it. I would have to give it probably, I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10 just because there are there are times where I do kind of fall asleep. But uh, I think that it's well done. Yeah, it, it really is one of those things. Like, the, the work that Joss Whedon did on this movie really can't be overstated. It is also kind of worth saying, and I, I think I've brought this up before, that for, for all the allegations that have come out of, of from Joss Whedon's projects over the years, that we've never really heard anything in terms of his Marvel stuff, which I, I think maybe comes... From the fact that, you know, I just think he was probably under a tighter ship under the Marvel leadership and probably just wasn't able to get away with the shit that he was allowed to get away with uh, on on some of his other sets where even though he is the writer director, it's really he's not the big top dog. Like it's like Kevin Feige is still kind of running the Mm -hmm. ship. You still have John Favreau as an executive producer on this movie. It's like there's there's things that. You know, I, I think he knew that he couldn't get away with some of the shit. Like, if he is going to work in, in again in the future, I think that th- that's going to have to be the case. Like, I think he, I think he's just going to have to be under a lot of supervision and just not be given all, all that kind of power. I think is really what, what's what's going to happen. But I also have a feeling that he's probably not going to really do. I, no. I think his career is we essentially won't see over. Him in the A-listers anymore. No, he yeah. does. He he does still have productions going on. 
but we won't see him in the A-listers anymore. But I do think that this is a phenomenally made. It's just an incredibly well-constructed movie. And it's also just a hell of a good time. Like, it's one of those, like, extremely rewatchable movies. Like, I can watch this movie over and over and over again. It's one of my favorite movies of the MCU. It actually was my favorite movie of the MCU for a long time. Uh, It's... A couple of movies have come out over the past couple of years that have actually dethroned it from the number one slot, but it's still on my top five. And I I do have to give this movie a 10 out of 10 for sure. It's funny, I was just listening to uh, another podcast, Office Ladies Today, where BJ Novak uh, from The Office was was talking about directing. And he has this, he had this quote that actually reminded me of this movie where he was saying that even if you uh, direct in like the most basic, just basic coverage way, if you just put in one really cool shot, everybody will think you're a good director. And it's one of those things where I realize that's what the like that's what that one shot where the Avengers are arguing and we we push in on the spear and then the camera flips upside down like throughout like it's such a cool shot like I've always waited it's like look he Wheaton's not just a good writer he's a great director I realize, wait do I think that because of the whole movie or I think because that one shot's really fucking cool like <laughs> was, god damn it he's right but I do still think he's a really good director actually I, I actually do think he's yeah. really phenomenal director and uh and i think he did a great job with this movie having said all that zach where can the folks find you the folks can find me on facebook as zachariah schneider they can find me on twitter as zachariah schnet4 at zachariah s-c-h-n-e-4 liz where can the folks find you uh you can find me on instagram and facebook under liz tory l-y-z-t-o-r-y and you can find me on twitter and uh tiktok under the Liz Tory. I'm Sam Wilson. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at SCWilson underscore actor. That's SC for cat. W-I-L-S-O-N underscore A-C-T-O-R. You can follow my band Gas Station Boner Pills at the Band of Boners to hear some nice uh, Jesus gospel-y music. <laughs> and you can follow Nerd Shit at the Nerd Shit Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We release episodes every single week. Make sure you subscribe to us anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Up next, uh, for the week of May 4th, we are going to be reviewing Star Wars Episode 4 A New Hope. I am so excited to get into the original, the OG, OG of Star Wars movies, which we're going to be doing uh, as as part of our, our Star Wars celebration. Make sure you also check out Nerd Shit News. We're going to do that every single Tuesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 o'clock Pacific. If we end up moving the time or the day, just follow us on our, our social medias and we're going to announce that. But Facebook uh, is the place to listen to that. You can also watch our, our older episodes of that as well. For Liz Tory and Zach Schneider, I'm Sam Wilson. Thank you for joining us for Nerd Shit. Nerd Shit. Nerd Shit. Nerd Shit Assemble. Nerd Shit. Nerd Shit. Strap on it, girls are talking about the nation.